This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore Rand's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Hello, and welcome to Rand. I'm Greg Ridgway, director of the Rand Safety and Justice Program and the Rand Center on Quality Policing. I've studied issues related to corrections and crime for most of my career at RAND and will be the moderator of tonight's discussion. It's my pleasure to introduce you to our speakers. Professor Clark Kelso is the federal prison receiver for the state of California in charge of making sure California complies with the U.S. Supreme Court ruling on improving the health of California's prisoners. Kelso teaches at the University of the Pacific McGeorge School of Law in Sacramento and most recently was the state's chief information officer. Dr. Stephen Therrett is the statewide medical executive for California Prison Healthcare Services. He coordinates all medical services within the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation's 33 adult prisons. Dr. Therrett previously was the director of the California Emergency Medical Services Authority in the California Health and Human Services Agency. Dr. Lois Davis is a senior policy researcher at RAND, focusing on the areas of public health and corrections. She was the lead author of a multi-year study on the public health implications of prisoner reentry in California. A California Assembly Select Committee on Reentry was charged with addressing the issues raised in her report, and she has testified before this committee many times. So let's start in right away. Uh, So in May of 2011, Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that the California must end overcrowding in our state's prisons uh, in order to improve medical conditions. Uh, CDCR, that's the California Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation, is responsible for complying with this order and needs to reduce the prison population by 33,000 inmates in the next two years. Uh, Already in the last couple months, they've already uh, released 11,000 inmates from the state prisons. In addition... Uh, public safety realignment will aid the state in achieving this goal by having low-level offenders serve their time in local county facilities rather than in state prisons. So, Professor Kelso, let's start with you. Uh, Do you believe CDCR will be able to meet the goals set out for it by the U.S. Supreme Court? Uh, Well, thanks, Craig. Uh, Delighted to be here. Uh, The answer to your question is yes, I do think CDCR is going to be able to um, meet that target. Uh, The department has presented a plan based on uh, state legislation uh, to the court, and they're required to give periodic updates about the progress that they are making. The court actually imposed some milestones. So it wasn't like, okay, let's see if you're done in two years. They said, well, after six months, we want to see this much progress. And uh, the, the state did file a report just about a week ago Uh, indicating that they've met the first milestone. There has been a significant reduction in the number of prisoners who are held at the state level. Um, And uh, I have a fair degree of confidence that the state is going to ultimately meet the target uh, that was set by the courts uh, and that it will significantly uh, improve our ability to deliver appropriate health care to inmates held in the adult institutions. Okay, thanks. Um, 
Dr. Davis, uh, maybe you could tell us about the inmates that are still in prison. Uh, what does this population look like? Uh, and what are their issues? And maybe uh, then maybe we could go to Dr. Therrett and maybe talk about some of the costs that are involved with, with, ha with handling their issues. One of the things that we looked at was understanding what are the health care needs. One of the key things is when we look at this population, they tend to be sicker than the general population. So, for example, they tend to have more chronic disease, more infectious diseases, the kind of conditions that we typically think need ongoing care to effectively manage. But especially important is this is a population that tends to have very high mental health needs. For example, about 50% of the, of the inmate population in a survey reported that they had recent mental health problems. Um, Two-thirds of them reported symptoms that met the criteria for drug abuse or dependence. So when we think about this population as a return to our local community, to Los Angeles County, we understand that this is a population with a high amount of health care needs. At the same time, when we think about the realignment population, and Dr. Thera will probably be able to speak to this uh, more specifically than I, this is a younger population than the general prison population. So we expect them to have fewer health chronic health conditions, but we also expect them still to have a fair amount of need for both mental health care services and alcohol and drug treatment services. So this is kind of one, one of the issues that counties are currently grappling with in terms of trying to understand what are, how are they going to provide services to this population in the context of reduced budgets. You can discuss some of the, the costs associated with managing them. Well, thank, thank you, Jeff. Um, really, when you take a look at how healthcare services and uh, specifically the medical services, but also broader to the behavioral health services and substance abuse uh, uh, needs of our population, we're actually behaving very much like a large managed care health organization. I mean, you, you, can, you can make the observation that we might have what you could call the ultimate and the captive population responsible for delivering health care. And over the last few years, we have put in uh, the mechanisms that you would see very similar uh, in, in your large managed care health population uh, of service delivery. We have a utilization management section, for instance. We have a contracting area. We're, we're looking at you know, delivering, delivering the constitutionally adequate health care to the to the greatest number within you know within our global budget that, that that we operate in, so you know we are basically a 33 institution decentralized primary care practice. Um, you know the quality of our clinicians. We have uh, general internists, family practitioners, uh, gynecologists for our, our women's uh, population that that deliver this kind of health care that. Uh, cover the populations of other, for instance, uh, safety net populations. We look very similar to, uh, to the uh, health care delivery systems of a lot of our larger counties. Um, the, the health needs of this population, uh, the, med the medical needs, uh, you know, we have, um, uh, you, know, you might say, adverse selection. We have 17% of our uh, inmate population, for instance, are infected with hepatitis C. Um, which requires uh, long ongoing uh, ongoing treatment. We have six percent of our population is diabetic. Um, you know our infectious disease rates, you know, on entry tend to be large, and so these are the needs that we meet within uh, within the healthcare system on a day to day basis, and then utilize outside contracted services through our uh, health net contracted provider that we've put in to deliver the specialty services that we just don't have the ability to deliver. Now, this population, some of them are going to start moving from the state prison system 
back to communities, either in county jails or directly back to the community. So the California state legislature, in part to, to uh, deal with the Supreme Court ruling, uh, passed the Public Safety Realignment Act uh, just last year, uh, making these moves. So when inmates return to their communities, uh, are those communities ready for them? Uh, are there certain counties, uh, and particularly since we're a Los Angeles uh, audience, are, is Los Angeles in particular likely to be disproportionately affected? And maybe Professor Kelso, you could. Uh, well, that. I don't know if Los Angeles is disproportionately affected. Uh, it, it is the case that Los Angeles sends a large proportion of CDCR's population to CDCR, and when they're up for parole, they come back to Los Angeles. Uh, and I expect, as with many things, it's you know around the thirty percent, thirty, thirty-three percent. So the impact on Los Angeles is large. That's because Los Angeles is large. Um, I do think another point about costs that is worth mentioning, the, and this is, again, CDCR's population is a lot like general safety net populations. A large portion of our population doesn't cost very much. But, boy, that last 5% costs a lot. And so I think the burden on counties is going to depend very much on exactly which one of the inmates are subject to realignment. Uh, and I do think, I agree with Lois, that it's much more likely you're going to see the impact in the mental health and in the uh, drug and alcohol abuse context. The, the patients who we have that are the most complex and expensive, they tend to be older inmates who have been sentenced for very long periods of time because they've committed violent, serious crimes. Those people are not coming back to local control under realignment. They're staying at the state level. But I do think the, the big issue, and the big issue that we've been in conversation with local governments about, including Los Angeles, what about that mental health burden? And, and how can we improve the continuity of transferring treatment from a state institution to the county. Those are the issues we are looking at. And uh, so are the counties ready for this? Well, um, I, I don't know that I'm in the best position to say whether the counties are ready, but it's probably better for the counties to say whether they're ready. Uh, I, I think that, um, as, as with many things, the larger counties are going to have an advantage in adjusting their own programs to take the larger number of people. Now, you know, I have to admit, this is a very substantial number of inmates within a short period, three or four months, and we've seen you know a reduction of twelve to fifteen thousand inmates in that period of time. It's a big gulp to do quickly, uh, but I do think most counties will discover over time, yeah, this fits within our safety net system. I do think there are some small number of very small counties where, you know, I understand we have one county that only has one doctor, and they don't have a hospital in the county. Well, that's a county that's got a particular problem that I think we have to deal with. I think the larger counties, by and large, will, will discover they have the resources. Okay, and uh, Dr. Davis, uh, in your recent report, you wrote that, that right now there's sort of a special convergence because of the current realignment plan and health care reform, that they're going to be happening essentially at the, at the same, they're happening at the same time. Uh, does that prevent, present uh, special opportunities? I think one of the um, people are well aware of the challenges associated with realignment as well as 
as we now are trying to do the planning and counties try to prepare for health care reform. But one of the key barriers to access to care for this population, they tend to be predominantly male. They tend to be um, typically very impoverished. And so one of the things that's going to happen under health care reform is that is that we're going to be expanding Medicaid eligibility. So for the first time, there's the opportunity for this particular population to gain access to health insurance under Medicaid, and, or here in California, Medi-Cal. And so what that does is that it allows an opportunity then for counties as they start planning for the Medicaid expansion population, of which the realignment criminal justice and law population is just one component to start putting into place systems of care, to start building back up their capacity and the safety net, to start being able to address the needs of this population as a whole. So such things, for example, as putting into place um, medical homes, you know, in those neighborhoods and communities where you have relatively high concentrations of individuals returning from prison would make a lot of sense. That's the sort of thing that Alameda County has done with their um, Healthy Oakland clinics, for example, San Francisco has done something similar. So there's real opportunities here to start trying to set into place some systems of care that build upon the larger planning that is occurring with health care reform to address the needs of this population. Now for a long time, the, the medical care provided in prisons was deemed inadequate, unconstitutional, in fact. Is that, is that correct? Um, and when you took over as, as federal receiver in 2008, since then you've helped improve medical care uh, in, uh, in California prisons. And in fact, uh, Judge Henderson noted last week that uh, the end of the receivership appears to be in sight. Uh, how did you do it? And are we in fact ready to end the receivership? Well, uh, how did we do it? Um, I think that's a fairly uh, easy thing to answer. Uh, we very quickly after I was appointed, within about 60, 90 days, uh, we put forward a turnaround plan of action that had about 48 different action items, goals that we had to meet. Uh, we vetted that with the parties and the court. They approved it. We worked very hard with the administration and the legislature to secure funding for it, and we're about 80% done with it. And it turns out that when you plan and give yourselves three or four years and have the cooperation of uh, state officials, you can really accomplish things. Um, and I, you know, I think that's an important lesson because uh, so oftentimes uh, governments at all levels uh, are given a rap that, no, you can't change anything. And I just don't think that's true. It depends on having a good plan giving time for it to play out, and having some continuing political support. Um, how we did it, well, it's no great mystery. Uh, Dr. Therrett sort of mentioned a few of the things. We said, let's try to operate this like a large managed healthcare organization. Well, that's no great insight. Uh, that already had been done uh, in the private sector. And so we just had to put the tools in place that the private sector used to deliver health care. And guess what? You can see improvements. Well, one of the things that did help us, I think, early on, uh, I have a sort of a commitment to performance-based approaches to government. And early on, we did contract with RAND to come down and do a study of what should be the things that we measure 
to determine whether we're getting better. And uh, Rand did a great study for us that said, here are about 56 different things you should measure. And we've been doing that. We've been piece by piece trying to gather information along those lines. And again, what, what is perhaps not surprising, at least to me, is when you gather data and you start to manage to the data, organizations will change. A pretty basic lesson. Now, as for when, the, you know, are we done now? Uh, I don't think we're done now. We're, we have a few things left to do. We're having conversations with the state about some unfinished business. Uh, how much construction do we still need to do? How many improvements in the prisons do we need? I have a little bit of information technology that needs to finish up. So there are a, a few things that still need to be done. But it's quite clear that we've been directed by the court to have conversations about how do you know when you're done? How do you know when the cases are done? Uh, and I agree with the, the judge in the case. Uh, you can see light at the end of the tunnel. Uh, we're sort of, you know, in the fourth quarter and moving towards the end of the game. Okay. I don't think we've had really a, a healthy public debate about what the role of prisons and corrections should be in our society or state or what we use them for. And there's really four reasons we use them. It's for incapacitation, to put, a, put away the people that really can't, we can't afford to have out in public. For uh, rehabilitation, maybe some of them can actually be returned into uh, upstanding citizens. Uh, deterrence, to, that this is a threat, that others will not commit crime uh, in order to avoid prison sentences. And lastly, uh, retribution. Now, those are sort of the four reasons we, ha we have that. Now, we've been putting away a lot of people over the last couple decades in California, but at the same time, we've had a tremendous reduction in violent crime and property crime in California. 20 years ago, our violent crime rate was, was more, than, uh, more than double. Uh, so we feel we are a lot safer. We feel a lot, lot safer. So now when we start seeing where we're going to start letting reduce our prison population and these, these individuals are going to start coming out, uh, what should we think about the future of, cor of corrections in California? Should we reserve that prison space only for those who really need to be incapacitated? Uh, is rehabilitation in prison possible? Uh, what is that role of prisons in, in sort of in our future, and uh, how should we how should we be thinking about that? Uh, I'll leave that open to anyone who wants to ta tackle that first. Oh, well, that's a small question, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> so, uh, uh, I'll go ahead and jump into sure. that one uh, w with two observations. Um, I think quite a few other states have discovered in the last decade that they did not have to incarcerate as many. Uh, people as we do in California. And yet their violent crime rates came down anyway. So I, you're exactly right that you look at the numbers in California and violent crime has come down, property crime has come down, um, and you can say, well, it appears to be associated with a particular approach to corrections policy. And I guess I'm just not convinced about that second conclusion that there really is some proof of causation. Because you look at other states, and I hope Ram will take the opportunity to pursue this further, you look at other states and they're seeing decreases without having to incarcerate as many as we do. Now, whether the experience in other states is something that, there's something special about these other states, different than California, I don't know. I think it's worth looking at. Um, th so that's one comment on, on the topic. Um, I think a, 
you know, a, a second comment is that I think in California it's fair to say, at least for a portion of our state correction system, we've been using it as a substitute for appropriate mental health treatment. And that what we really have done is, you know, 40 years ago, let's close the hospitals, state hospitals, dealing with mental health issues. Those people ended up in prison. And I think there are a lot of people in prison really because of underlying mental health issues, uh, drug and alcohol problems, who actually uh, would be more cost-effective to find alternative treatments for them. Um, one, of, um, one of the things I was going to mention is um, when we look at what's been happening in terms of the past few years in terms of the economic downturn, we've seen in order to reduce corrections costs a substantial reduction in funding for rehabilitative services within the prison system. So for example, substantial cuts to in-prison substance abuse programs. And one of the things I think the challenges that counties face under realignment, it means that that individuals coming back to counties, um, whether they be on um, being serving their time at the county jail level, whether it be um, um, coming out on parole, post-release community supervision, for example, that these are individuals that are coming back with far less rehabilitative programming, rehabilitative services um, from the prison system. So that suggests that, that the counties are going to see a greater unmet need in this population. And so one of the challenges for counties in that is to think about what is the full range of rehabilitative services that this population needs? What does that mean for us as a county? How are we going to try to target resources appropriately to try to achieve the outcomes that we want with this population? So I think, as, I think realignment represents an important attempt by California to reduce the size of the prison population, a very positive thing. But at the same time, there's some challenges for counties that don't necessarily have that experience yet in delivering rehabilitative services. But I think it's going to be ultimately an important experiment and one that California hopefully can, can rise to the challenge. When you say rehabilitative services, are you mostly thinking drug treatment or is it mental health treatment or is it I'm, anger management? What sort of things I'm, are we talking I'm about? I'm really talking about the full range of services. So not just when we think about behavioral health or, or health care, but, but also... Um, the sort of things you would expect them to receive in a prison correctional setting that would help kind of reduce their risk of reoffending, for example, so the full range of services. One of, one of the perspectives, from, particularly from the medical, medical side and also as an epidemiologist, is as we, you know, as we you know, improve the, the care that is being delivered in the here and now and the present, is to look at what our population that will remain in state prison looks like in the next few years. And you know we are we are facing in the prison system very much the same discussion that we're having in our communities is an onslaught of an aging population that will have very different medical needs, particularly as it relates to dementia and memory loss. And you know by 2017, which is not that far out in in, in, popula in population projections, simply four years from now, 25 percent of the population in adult population in CDCR will be over the age of 55. And from a, from a medical standpoint, patients behave in the prison system about 10 years, physiologically 10 years older than their chronologic age. So 55 is really 65. 
and to deal with what will eventually be a large population that will have medical custodial issues. You know, how do you provide for advanced memory loss, Alzheimer's disease, the, the custodial support, in addition to the traditional forensic uh, custodial uh, purpose that, that CDCR has. And so when we're looking at the long-term infrastructure that, that still needs to be done, the infill and the construction, we're, we're really looking at how do you, you know, right-size and right-plan to be able to appropriately deal with this population that will remain behind. Now, uh, let me infer from that, if the population that's in prison is older and sicker, does that mean the people that are going to be let out or not put in prison are going to be the younger and healthier with still a fairly productive criminal career ahead of them? <laughs> well, I mean, one of, one of the things to look at is even, you know, we, we, we spend a lot of time dividing people into high medical use and, and low medical use. And as, as, as uh, you know, uh, Mr. Kelso points out, you know, that a, like everywhere else, a very small number of our, uh, of our patients drive a large percentage of our medical costs. But even our healthy, uncomplicated, you know, uh, people that are qualifying for realignment, I mean, they're coming out of the institution on an average of 3.4 prescriptions and see a health care provider about twice as often as the general population does. So even, even uh, you know, I would not characterize these necessarily as medically complex but at least coming out of the institutions, they are medically needy, and you know you 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 know you throw these these uh, these patients into a, a stressed safety net system, and you know with each county having a slightly different way of their delivering services, and then try to you know map these people out and provide for an appropriate handoff and transition. You know those are the things that we still have to learn, the opportunities we have to to move forward with. Now, you, you mentioned that, that there's a bunch of counties all doing really different things, and some have described this as a 58-county experiment, because every county really gets to develop their own initiative. Uh, do we know yet, uh, maybe Dr. Davis, whether there are any particular counties or particular programs that look really promising, uh, and, and are they going to be sharing information across the counties? I think one of the interesting things about realignment is when we think about it, it's, it's really a fundamental change to our criminal justice System. There's a lot that that we don't know. Um, each county, as as Greg mentioned, um, was was given the leeway to develop their own plan for how they were going to implement realignment. Um, when we look across counties historically, some of the counties here in California that have been fairly progressive, fairly proactive in terms of addressing the needs of the reentry population, are places like Alameda County, San Diego County, for example. Um, so they, so those are the counties that we expect, particularly to have a leg up in terms of having the interagency coordination, the planning in place to think about how to deliver services to this population. Um, one of the important things from a healthcare standpoint is, as Dr. Theretz mentioned, this is a fairly medically needed population, and one of the things that's happening in these counties too, and Alameda is a good example, is they're establishing what they call medical homes that are trying to locate them clinics in those in those neighborhoods where you have the highest <coughs> rates of return and try to um, in the case of healthy Oakland for example they they meet the individuals as they're coming out of prison connect them right away to a clinic do a full assessment connect them with a full range of services that that kind of model is something that other counties can maybe benefit from in thinking about what are the early lessons learned from like 
Oakland or San Francisco, for example, in trying to put wraparound services available for these communities. So that's one example of some initiatives out there that counties can benefit from. Okay, let me do uh, one more question before we open it up to uh, the audience for some questions. Uh, I think there's a big concern that uh, the information that you know in the, in the state uh, prison system about a particular offender, when they're released back to the community or back to their local jail, that information is not passed with them, their medical history in particular. Uh, is that being improved? Is it going to happen? Will the local facilities know everything you know about uh, the people that they are receiving? You want to do that that's, one, Steve, or yeah. should I? That, that's, a, that's a work in progress. I mean, you know, basically, as, as, as we model this behavior, it's very much, you know, like a, you can think of it as a patient transitioning healthcare providers. They're moving from one healthcare system to another healthcare system. And historically, you know, as, as, you know, even before realignment, when, you know, patients would, would parole to, uh, to a local jurisdiction, they would return to state, a large number of them would return to state prison in a very short period of time. So the county never really had a long opportunity to, you know, to get these people plugged into the, to the support systems. Well, now under realignment, these are people that will be staying in the community for a longer period of time. So really where, we're, where, where we have to catch up is in this concept of case management and transitional planning. You know, to the extent that we have, you know, technology, you know, technology opportunities and, and you know, we have transitioned. One of the in internal things is we have moved to an electronic unit health care record, which is, you know, basically present, you know, everywhere in the system. It's no longer a paper chart you know, um, from a particular date forward. We're about eight months, nine months into it now. Um, so looking at technology like the federal government has used, for instance, like, uh, uh, like the VA system or the Centers for Medicare Services with this blue button technology, and looking at the opportunities once an inmate has given consent. I mean, you know, as we transition these patients, not only are they transitioning from one health care to another, but they are transitioning from an incarcerated to a non-incarcerated state. So we have all the standard challenges that you struggle with in the county of dealing with, you know, HIPAA and, and all those other health care things. To me, the, 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 the actual technology we use is a simpler thing than building those networks of case management, which are really many-to-many -many because you're looking at 58 counties, each of whom may have to access a patient coming to them at one of 33 institutions. And, you know, anybody here who has done case management, whether in the behavioral health or the medical side, knows that that needs to be done at a local level. That can't be coordinated from a single county resource or a single, uh, a single uh, CDCR resource. So to develop those resources, those linkages between 33 institutions and 58 counties, you know, we've started this from our most medically complex patients. You know, we have fairly extensive case management services for people that will be undergoing transition when they are hospitalized. Um, and that's where we've chosen on the medical side to start the process. But, you know, we're looking for opportunities to partner and innovative programs at the county. Yeah, let's talk about those and see where, see where there are some opportunities to improve that handoff. Okay, so uh, we'll open up for questions now. We have microphones that will be coming your way if you'd like to uh, address the question. Um, we'll be happy to take some audience questions. Me and my colleague Nora will be taking them. So we're just going to find some great people, and we're going to see as many as we can get through. So I'll ask, keep your questions short so we can get to as many of you as possible. Start with this lovely lady. 
What would be the one thing that you think could be done to reduce recidivism that would be the most cost-effective solution? Well, um, the one thing that, that I think I've seen and is being studied, and we're trying it in one county, uh, there's a, a program that originated in Hawaii known as Hope Probation that involves a very much one-on-one -on -one close monitoring of someone who typically is on probation, now would be on parole, where the premise of the program is you know that if you do something bad, you will be punished immediately. Now, the punishment doesn't have to be you go back to jail for six months, but it's that very quickly you're going to come back in the jail maybe for the weekend. And what appears to have happened in this program is the idea of swift, certain consequences makes a difference. And it doesn't have to be six years of punishment. It's, I'm taking you away from your friends this weekend. So I think there's a lot of hope in programs like that that are very focused on individual accountability and consequences for bad behavior. Yeah, we focus a lot on punishments. I mean, punishments are need to be swift, certain, severe, and severity has always been the easiest one to, to accomplish. Well, let's just double the sentence for that crime. That was easiest. But it's harder to get it, make it faster and more certain. But in these special cases where we're evaluating a program in South Dakota right now for, for drunk drivers, every morning at 7 a.m. and every evening at 7 p.m., they report to the local sheriff's station to do a breathalyzer every day, twice, twice a day. And if they fail that, they walk, <laughs> the, they're escorted right to the back and they're held uh, for about 24 hours, 48 hours, it, dep it depends. So swift, certain, and, they, and many of them show up with their toothbrush and their medication because they know <laughs> they're, they're going to fail and they go in. And we're evaluating it right now to see if, uh, if that's going to reduce uh, 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 DUIs uh, in South Dakota. There, there was a very interesting study that was reported out of Case Western this week that, that tried to tease out you know, given, given the prevalence of both mental health and substance abuse problems and the association that has recidivism, could we tease out which one is more important? And it, it turned out in this, in this study with the da data set they used that the substance abuse drove the recidivism rate, not the mental illness uh, component. So given the prevalence of medical, mental health, and substance abuse, if I, if I was a county trying to struggle saying what's going to be my best bang for my buck in terms of specifically reducing recidivism, I would probably look at substance abuse treatment, substance abuse management programs as being the, you know, not to the, not to the detriment of the other two, because obviously they're all important, but I would probably try leading with that if I was specifically trying to get at the, at the, at the recidivism issue. I have a question in the front. The, the stan standard advice given to somebody who is certain he's going to have to go to jail is uh, quick run down and throw a rock through the post office window and stand there screaming you're going to kill the president. That way you'll go to a federal jail instead of uh, <laughs> a state jail. Uh, but uh, we had here in California <laughs> one particular uh, penal institution which had such remarkably low recidivistic rate that uh, it looked like an anomaly on the charts and the uh, there was an investigation made and they immediately fired the warden uh, 
what what was wrong? Uh, you must be familiar with this case. Uh, but I've never heard anything from it since the guy got fired. Hmm. Do you know that case? I don't know that one. Oh. Don't know that one. Yeah, know that unfortunately. One. I heard this. But I'm going to go back and ask some people. That sounds like a great story. <laughs> we have a question here in the middle. Uh, one of the uh, functions of the state system that will have to be considered in realignment is the responsibility for room and board. Uh, the uh, uh, With the termination and re return to community, uh, with a population that's impaired medically, as you described it, uh, probably with low employment opportunities, at least for a period of time, uh, what's been the experience with respect to the substitution of room and board and the addition of uh, this population to what it already is the nation's largest homeless population? Yeah. Um, you want to handle it? <laughs> this is a tough crowd. Right. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't. I have not heard anything yet about results along those lines. Now, uh, I do know that with respect to the population of inmates who have medical conditions that require some perhaps special housing, nursing home quality, throughout the receivership, I routinely have been uh, received phone calls and presentations from developers um, who are working with business people who have said, hey, I can open cheaply for you uh, appropriate housing for this part of your population. Now, as it happens, we, we haven't needed to avail ourselves of that. But if you take a look at what's happening with the federal health care reform, the possibility of additional dollars from the state coming to local communities to deal with realignment, at least on the health care population, uh, I think there may be some, um, some room for hope. Um, you know, I, there are some homes that are being opened specifically to deal with this type of a population. Uh, and I do think ultimately, uh, this gets back to one of your prior questions, um, you know, ultimately California may want to consider having some form of what I would call geriatric put parole, yeah. where, you know, right now we've got something called medical parole, which is for really people who have lost uh, quite a few ability to function. But it may be we need to take a look at who are these older guys in prison and shouldn't we find more cost-effective ways of housing them, not in prison, but in an appropriate, less costly facility? I've got a question here in the center. Good evening. <clears throat> I'm, uh, my name's John Whitaker, and I'm uh, a person in long-term recovery, and I've been from all mind-altering substances, and I've been watching very closely the Portuguese experiment which is uh, in Portugal, instead of being put into the penal system for the first, second, and third time low uh, offenders, they go into the mental health and uh, behavioral health system. It's been extremely positive for the last 10 years. Is CDCR looking at any of that uh, as a possible model? Um, or do you, are you familiar with that, uh, that model? 
Well, you know, that I, I'm not familiar with that specific model, but the question is, you know, can't, as I, I'll paraphrase it, you know, is there a place to provide substance abuse and mental health services that provides for an appropriate security other than the state prison system? And the challenge there gets back to, you know, the decisions that were made a long time ago, basically, to mainstream behavioral health services into the community. And if you take a look at, at you know, uh, my, my old agency in Health and Human Services, you know, there is a whole realignment process. When you talk about realignment over in Health and Human Services, you're not talking about uh, Prop 1 or uh, AB 109. You're talking about realignment of the, the dollars and the local assistance for behavioral health. And um, Governor Brown has proposed a reorganization to the Department of State Hospitals which, you know, suddenly starts looking seven facilities, the, the remaining state hospitals we have, um, you know, looking at, you know, looking very similar with a different mission, but an organizational structure similar to, you know, the, the institutional network that we have. The, I think the challenge there comes with the, the thing that we're all grappling with, whether we're at the local level or the state level, which is one of capacity. Is that you know these are you know you know seven seven facilities with you know that we have two of them actually co-located with our institutions you know that have the capability of of housing a few hundred you know when you're when you're taking a look at the needs of, for substance abuse rehabilitation services and behavioral health services for this population it's generally larger than that and you know you then get into the issues of, uh, of again choices that, that our inmate patients make as to how they want to to rehabilitate or if they want to rehabilitate you know which you know it does have to factor into the equation you know, it's very difficult to deliver these services to someone that does not want them one of the issues too here in california is that as we've uh, reduced services both for contracted for newly released individuals as well as for substance abuse in general, what you see is there's also changes occurring out in terms of among community providers. So insurance companies, for example, are shortening the length of time that they will cover um, for a particular um, episode of care, for example, in a in an alcohol and drug treatment facility. It's also true that that there's um, um, we're starting to think rethink models of what's what's the effective amount of time that's needed. But all of that, there's a lot of pressures coming not just from kind of um, a lot of unmet need, but a lot of pressures coming from both the insurance side of things as well as from um, kind of how people are thinking about what can we realistically provide in this environment. This, these are the sort of issues that counties are going to have to grapple with because this is a population that clearly needs uh, these services in a very important way. So. I have a question to your right. I, the federal receiver is a really different entity than a State Department of Corrections, and I'm wondering, Mr. Kelso, if you have any ideas about how to ensure that the state is able to continue the reforms that you've implemented. Well, that's a great question, and, and it is what the court is concerned about right now. How will the state maintain the progress we've made uh, when the receivership goes away and then when the cases go away because ultimately the federal court will wrap up its jurisdiction. And it does want to make sure that this is sustainable over time. Um, and there's several things I think that, that we've been doing and that we still have to do. Uh, one of the things is uh, many of the programs that we've put in place that we think are critical to our success like utilization management, uh, we've actually had legislation introduced 
that says the department has to do these things. So one way of trying to do this is to have statutes that mandate it. Uh, a second thing we're doing, uh, and this goes back to my commitment to performance-based approaches to government management, uh, we will very shortly be making publicly available uh, a dashboard of performance measures, uh, largely many of them based on uh, the RAND research, that will permit anybody to drill down through the dashboard to each one of our institutions. See, how well are they performing? Uh, and I'm probably then going to ask the legislature to pass a statute mandating that that dashboard reporting continue. Because my view is if you provide the information and everybody can see whether you're maintaining or going down, that will help in Sacramento provide political pressure to support reforms. The third big question, and this one I don't think you can force a state to do something, is just a budget question. What is the state likely to do or what does it intend to do during this current governorship about the budget support for health care? Now, that's one where I just don't think in the long term you can tell a state, here's how much has to get spent. Uh, California has an interesting history that probably all of you know about of trying to mandate formulas for spending. It doesn't work very well. Uh, and I certainly think it would be a problem just from a court perspective, a legal perspective, to try to order some level of maintenance. Uh, but I do think conversations with the state about it will be helpful. I have a question to the side. Hello, uh, my name is Michael Tynan. I'm not in recovery yet. Maybe I ought to be. But <laughs> I'm a judge of the Superior Court downtown, and I'm in charge of the rehab sort of uh, function that we have in the court. I'm dealing with this every day. We're trying to deal with this every day. Thank you, finally, for coming around to drugs uh, and alcohol. Uh, about 70% of the people that we send to state prison for felonies, used to, uh, were involved with drugs or alcohol. Uh, and, and strangely enough, the same percentage, about 70%, was that was a recidivism rate. So we think maybe there's a connection there. Uh, and if you're interested in, in how the counties are going to deal with it, I think you have to follow the money. Uh, I forget the number exactly. Mark, what do you think? $150 million L.A. County was supposed to get? Pardon me? Okay. There was a, quite a struggle between probation and, and um, the sheriff's department. Each one wanted all of it. Uh, they divided it up sort of between them, and they left a few dollars for uh, legal uh, services. And I think about $6 million for uh, mental health and alcohol and drug treatment. Am I right? They're going to split between them. Mark is the head of CCJCC, by the way. He's a very important guy in the county. I have to be nice to him. <laughs> uh, what I'm saying is that, that you say, uh, Mr. Kelso, that, that we can't mandate how the money is going to be spent. And so they did. So Alameda County and San Francisco County did a pretty good job, I think. And L.A. County, not very much money was going to go to treatment. Right. And I don't know how that's going to work out, but I have a hunch it's going to be a bit of a disaster. By the way, I speak for myself and not for the Los Angeles Superior Court. I want that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I didn't know you had this kind of juice, Mr. Kelso. Can you go up there and tell the legislature to start telling these guys how to spend that money? Because this, this is not going to work. I'm sorry. They're using most of that money, as I understand it, not for treatment, but for personnel. They're hiring more deputy sheriffs and they're hiring more deputy uh, uh, probation officers. And, and by the way, before you answer that, 
about the Hope program up in Hawaii, I, I thought it was a, a gold mine. There are no silver bullets in this business, and nobody has done, I think you call it a linear study to see how it, it works out. I mean, most of these addicts can hold it together for three months or six months, which I think is about what the old program is. And after that, they don't, they don't clock them anymore. So I'm not sure exactly how long-term successfully that's going to work out. But would you please tell the legislature to get on the ball and, and, and get this squared away? I mean, I'm serious. We, we are uh, profoundly puzzled about how this is going to work out. It, it is a, a quagmire. And I have got more stuff to say, but they're probably not going to give me the mic. <laughs> Well, I, I appreciate your expression of confidence. Uh, the, uh, the, the, to clarify, the, the point I wanted to make was I don't think a federal judge would want to try to order the legislature how to spend, kind of a federalism separation of powers thing. Your observation, though, you know, if the state wants to be a little more directive about how to do this, there's nothing wrong with the legislature doing that. Now, that, what that means is there's going to have to be inevitably in the state's budget process a lot of conversation uh, because a lot of different counties are going to be affected given that, at least initially here, they've all been given some discretion to try things out. But, uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily disagree that it's, it's a, a worthy conversation to try to have in Sacramento. As you know, though, the, you know, budget conversations are Byzantine to say the least. Mm -hmm. uh, on, on the HOPE probation, I thought there had been a little bit of a longitudinal study that UCLA researchers had done, but maybe not. not <laughs> yeah, 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 it doesn't go out that long. Okay. Yeah, not that long. Yeah. I just appreciate the observation. Again, there's no silver follow up with that on two points one is if we remember prop 36 that was there was a mandated statewide evaluation in order to inform how are we going to refine this program etc one of the i think really sobering things about realignment there is no mandated any kind of assessment or, or evaluation so in other words counties won't know what models are working better for example does alameda do a, a better job than other counties in terms of, of dealing with this population. So there's no opportunities to really learn the, from the counties, one another, to see what are the different service delivery models or management models that make most sense. So I think that's something that, that people should be aware of, that, that we're undergoing this, this major experiment, but we don't have mechanisms in place yet 
to really understand what the impact is. I think we know, though, what works. And, and so. Prop 36 was a failure and about a 25% success rate, however you want to phrase that, yeah. which is about what guys on probation were getting anyway without any particular treatment. And 75% of them yeah. uh, got arrested again within a year or two, whatever the period was. Without a hammer, without the, 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 uh, the real uh, prob not probability, a certainty, that somebody's going to have to go to jail or prison if they mess up on probation. Without that, drug courts, rehab courts, I, I got a mental health court, even those people, uh, you need the hammer. Not that I'm going to use it, but we right. need that threat. And yep. If the legislature takes it away from us, all these programs are going to kind of disappear. Interesting. Thank you very much for letting me vent. I, I no. <laughs> Judge Tynan, we always appreciate your venting. Hopefully we'll keep you on the bench a little longer now and instead of a life of crime. I apologize that we only have time for one last question. Uh, the, name, the name public safety realignment, it's kind of interesting. It's a great marketing name, actually. You know, you think about it. Uh, but uh, in the fire department, uh, inmate crews, uh, play a part in public safety. Uh, those of you who live here in Southern California know what wildfires are like, and Mother Nature makes us practice here on all sorts of different other catastrophes. And so, uh, kind of just two points. One is, uh, what are we going to do about the uh, inmate crew program we have that uh, goes through the state? Because without them, then other critical resources are going to have to be applied to those fires. One, and the second is, is uh, fire and uh, EMS providers, fire departments in the county, we're kind of like the safety net. So we're going to also feel the impact of the other piece. So sometimes, you know, this policy without resources is, you know, kind of like rhetoric. And I'm just curious as a, just your comments on the impact in, in public safety, especially fire and EMS, from your perspective. Well, you know, I, I can say that we feel the same pain uh, that uh, I suspect you're going to be feeling. Because even within the prison, we use a lot of the same quality of inmates to perform work for us uh, that has to get done. And it's cheaper to use inmate labor. And that inmate labor is going to be going away. So we're having to try to figure out how do we deal with that same problem. Are there, can we identify other inmates who can participate? So can we staff up the fire camps with other inmates through some mechanism? Or do we have to do an alternative? Uh, and approach it differently. Uh, I know one thing that, um, and I don't know if this is a possible solution for the fire crews in particular, um, you know, go to the counties and figure out is there a way of getting access to those same people. Um, simply they're under the jurisdiction now of local government. They're not under CDCR jurisdiction where there's been a long history of relationships for the fire camps. Try to establish new relationships to at least get some of those resources provided initially during the summer. I know more generally with the, uh, the emergency medical service, and I think Steve can speak more to this, we really have tried hard over the past three or four years to establish better working relationships between the department and local fire and emergency medical services. Uh, because when I started, uh, it w the relationships were just terrible. Uh, and it, we had very acrimonious discussions about why do you keep sending these sorts of people to us and on our side we'd be upset about the cost and I, I think at least with some of these southern region uh, EMS directors we have figured out how to work together 
productively to improve service and reduce costs. Uh, uh, Steve, I don't know, you can talk more about yeah, that. I mean, we've been we've been actually piloting that down in Southern California. One of the one of the the challenges, and and you know, I clearly understand the 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 apprehension that our colleagues in in particularly the fire service, having come up through through the fire service and being medical director for a lot of them for a while, is that resource. And what we've done on the on the medical side, I mean, we don't you know, no one listens to the doctors anyway. So I mean, from the <laughs> standpoint of um, you know, as the state and the locals come up with new ways of saying how can we access those resources. We're laying the groundwork for their medical care in the system, recognizing that the collection of camps and the distributed system we have, uh, whether those people are there under the control of CDCR or the locals or some hybrid thing we haven't come up with, that we will be able to deliver their medical care and that those people selected for that camp are medically appropriate to do the job. So, you know, you know, we've we've we've, you know, tried to anticipate, you know, what the way this looks and we're building on, you know, some of the models um, that we use for medical screening, medical acceptability that have already worked. So, you know, we're we're prepared if we can figure out, you know, if, if we can be of assistance as these, you know, plans come up to maintain the service. Uh, we recognize our our institutions are in very far flung remote areas and we do have an impact on emergency medical services to the community. And so to the extent that we've had the communications laying out, we want to take the successes we've had in Southern California and roll those out to the Central Valley and up north where we can understand the impact and that we can provide, you know, the resources of our health care system back to the community. And in, uh, in uh, Amador County, um, the institution, Mule Creek State Prison, uh, there have been very proactive, the medical leadership there, of working with the local health officers to say what are the resources that CDCR, the medical staff of Mule Creek, can provide to the community, a rural community in Northern California, in the event of a disaster or a, a, a terrorism event or something like that. Well, so the, the those opportunities exist. Sorry, well, the, the future is not all completely bleak. And in fact, our, our system is working well in some cases. I mean, certainly compared to Illinois and Louisiana, we've had to incarcerate many fewer governors. Uh, <laughs> so. Uh, uh, there, there is, there is uh, a lot of hope for, for California. Um, so uh, please uh, join me in thanking our panel for, for, the, for the discussion tonight. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.